to become a cab driver in London, people go through a ridiculous training program, like hundreds of hours spent in a classroom setting, even more time spent driving around the streets on mopeds, like memorizing the restaurants and different roads. A neuroscientist named Eleanor McGuire wanted to study the way that this intense training would affect the brains of these London cab drivers. So she takes a group of people before they go through the training program and scans their brains. They looked at a region of their brain called their hippocampus. And this part of our brain is associated with memory. What they found is they had like an average size hippocampus, the same as we would have. She then lets them go through the training program and comes back and scans their brain again. What they find is that that region of their brain grew by like 20% a physical visible change in the brain. Now, this study is important and we got to think about what it's telling us. It's not saying, yo, if you want to be a London cab driver, you need a big hippocampus. <laughs> it's saying the act of doing it over time physically changed their brain. They were building those connections. This is the idea called neuroplasticity that we've talked about a lot on our episodes. Two years later, though, she goes back to look more into like, well, what type of action is making these changes? And in this study, she compared the brains of London cab drivers to London bus drivers. And they selected people to be in the study that had spent the same amount of time driving, same amount of like hours per day and even years in the profession. So you could argue both groups had the same amount of reps driving the same streets. But what they discovered, I think, is really important. The brains of the cab drivers, that hippocampus would continue to grow and expand and there was really no change in the hippocampus of the bus drivers. Why? We would think that because the cab drivers and the bus drivers spent the same amount of time driving, that they would each have these changes in their brains. But what's happening here is the bus drivers are on a fixed route where they're doing the same loop over and over again, so their brains are not changing, whereas the cab drivers are constantly having to take new routes, take passengers to different places, and figure out new ways to get around the city. So their brains are changing as they drive. And I think this is important because people in our industry sometimes oversimplify learning and we're like, yep, to get good at something, do it a lot. But what this study is showing and many more support is it's not just about the quantity of reps in action and the quantity of practice. It's also about the quality. And that's the difference between these two groups. It's like, look, if I'm a bus driver, I'm going to set path. Like there's really no uncertainty or change or struggle. I know when I'm going to stop, where I'm going to stop. So I can kind of move into autopilot and I'm getting a lot of reps, but my brain isn't engaged in those reps. That's not true for cab drivers, especially in London. Like most of them don't use GPS. And so every ride is different. I'm adjusting according to the traffic, the weather, the time of day. And so the uncertainty, the struggle, the change are up. And therefore, I'm going to see the change in my brain. I'm not in autopilot while I'm engaging with these reps. Today, we're going to dig into what is quality practice and how can we do more of it? Welcome to the Learner Lab podcast. I'm Trevor Reagan. I'm Alex Belser. Each week, we're going to explore a topic to help us become better learners. If you're interested in more, you could check out thelearnerlab.com for videos, articles, and more pods. Let's go. There was a group of researchers from Harvard Medical School in 2005 that looked at five dozen studies looking at how the growth and development of doctors changes over time. Now, what you'd expect to see in research like this is like, okay, Probably the longer we're a doctor, the more experience we have, the better we get over time. 
But what they discovered in this meta-analysis was exactly the opposite. In almost every single one of the five dozen studies, they found at best the doctor's performance would sort of level off over time, and many times it would actually drop off. So what this is telling us is that skill development and growth is not a function of just time. Like there's something else going on here. If it was just time, you'd see it would be linear. It's like every year I get a little better, a little better, a little better. But that's just not the case. So if it's not a function of time, then what's happening here? This is the same thing that was going on with the cabs and the bus drivers. It's about the quality of practice. Okay. What are some problems with believing that practice is strictly a function of time? If you assume that practice is strictly a function of time, you're probably not going to spend too much time thinking about what you're actually doing, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're just going to whatever the first drill that someone teaches you, that's the one you're going to stick with and you're going to do it forever and ever, mm -hmm. even though that might not be the best way to, to, to develop a certain skill you want to develop. Right. So I'm not really changing strategies. I'm not looking at tactics. I'm just putting in the hours. And right. I think if you go a layer underneath that, it's and then I don't see the growth that I expect. And then I assume, well, something's wrong with me. It's like, right. I must not be able to learn this. It's like, no, something's wrong in the approach. It's, right. it's, we're, it's just the flawed assumption that it's about time and hours. Right. We just need to take a step back and realize what are the tactics we're using to try to develop a certain skill right here? And how do we actually need to change those to get where we want to go? And to be clear, yes, it does take time. Like we're not yeah, saying yeah. it doesn't. Whereas maybe what we're saying is it's quantity and quality, yeah. not just quantity. Right. That's a better representation of the equation of growing and getting better. Okay, we keep hyping up this quality of practice, but we need to get into the weeds of like, well, what is that? We have one of the world's leading experts as far as practice is concerned and learning is concerned, Anders Ericsson. So I'm Anders Ericsson, and I'm a professor of psychology at Florida State University. And I've been spending most of my life here trying to understand, you know, how people that are really achieving admirable things, either as doctors or athletes or musicians, uh, and basically try to extract that knowledge so other individuals wouldn't have to rediscover those practice methods, but could actually learn from what's already known. One of our favorite guests from season one, Daniel Coyle, I think summarizes Anders Ericsson's work the best on the back of his book, Peak. The science of excellence can be divided into two eras, before Ericsson and after Ericsson. His book, Peak, I think is one of the best learning books I've read in a while. And he does a good job of talking about, well, what makes some practice better than others? Sort of his claim to fame is this idea of deliberate practice. And so we're going to talk about like, what is deliberate practice, but how do just normal people like us use his research to get better at the stuff that we care about? I think what we found was that the kind of practice that really changes you is quite different from just keep doing what you're doing. And, and I think most people, when they take up a sport like tennis or golf or, you know, basketball, and what's kind of surprising is that people don't seem to get a whole lot better even if they keep playing golf, you know, once a week for 20 years. If you ask people what they do to actively now do things differently, uh, you find that they spend very little time, you know, they're busy and they just kind of more or less keep doing what they have been doing. Uh, and I think that 
is a kind of the key idea that if you want to change, you need to do something that actually changes you. So if you just keep doing what you are already able to do, uh, that's not going to change the kind of the accuracy or, or, or outcomes of what you're doing. What Anders studies, he's looking at the experts, the masters, like what separates the very, very best from the almost there. And right. it's deliberate practice that helps in that. It's not the entire thing. Of course, there's all sorts of environmental factors. Our genes and personality types play a role in this, for sure. Probably no one listening is going to master any of the skills that we're talking about. And that's okay. We don't have to be the world's leading expert in a field. Our goal is to get kind of good. And if we could get kind of good, we could get better than we think. And that could be life-changing. Right. We can use a lot of these same principles from people at the top of their field towards whatever skill we're trying to develop. And in some cases, we might have to adjust a bit and kind of work with what we have, but we can still use it as our goalpost. Like this is something that we're chasing. And if we understand this, it can help us no matter who we are, or what we do. In our conversation with Anders, and especially in his book, Peak, he really lays out sort of the foundational pieces of what makes quality practice. He talks a lot about purposeful and deliberate practice and shows how that's really what we should be chasing as far as improving practice. So core pieces. First, we have to have a concrete goal or skill that we're trying to build. So this means having like a specific target, right? Not just, I want to be a better learner. It's like, well, what are you trying to learn? What is right. the actual hone, skill? Hone in on a specific skill. Like I'm trying to become better at giving feedback or better right. at creating a more safe environment or at reappraising something. Right. And then rather than I want to be a better communicator, it's I want to be a better storyteller. I want to improve this particular style of presentation. The more specific, the better, right? Yeah. Uh, layer two. Now, this part gets a little bit messy, but we're going to leave this in as we hash it out. The actual definition of deliberate practice for Anders says we need an expert coach that knows like the optimal technique and approach that can guide us through our practice. Now, many of us, again, don't have access to that. We can't find the best person in the world at blank, and they're probably not going to coach us at this thing. So the goal here and what we're going to call this section is find a model. That's just finding someone who's good at whatever skill you want to get good at. And I do get a, quite a number of uh, emails from people who feel that having read the book, you know, they were really motivated here to do certain things. And uh, there's one group, which is sort of middle age individuals who basically had been doing something at a lower level and then reading the book had this sense here, you know, well, if they found a teacher, maybe they could actually go way beyond what they thought was possible. And, and, and there's several examples like that of uh, basically adults that were able to reach a level of mastery of their musical instruments that they had thought were just uh, impossible we can find models in lots of different ways. Whatever skill you're trying to get good at, there's probably someone that you know or that you know of that's better at that skill than you are. And you can use them as a model. Now, there are also lots of resources online. YouTube is great for finding models. Absolutely. Like, I legit did this when I was getting started in this workshop and speaking career. I used Seth Godin as my model. And I watched every single talk I could find of his on YouTube and I'd break it down like, why do I like this? And sort of you're dissecting 
their performance and looking for like, oh, well, what are the things that make this great? Why am I drawn to this? Like dream scenario, Seth Godin is in your living room teaching you, coaching you, walking you through this, right? But that's probably not going to happen. And yeah. so we should use the next best thing, which is leveraging the internet and using that to our advantage, right? Like there, we have so much access to different models that we may have never had access to just because the internet is a massive thing in our lives today. Okay, so we say pick a concrete skill, find a model, could be someone around us, someone online, but someone who's good at the thing, and we can start a, to look at, well, why are they good? And they can be our sort of North Star. Next layer, and this is really important, is we need to engage in action and reps that expand us out of our comfort zone. So basically, the way I believe that all change happens is that you're actually trying to do something and you can stretch that ability if you focus in on it. And I think it's very well exemplified in sports where if you're lifting weights that you don't have to make an effort lifting, you're not going to get any basically physiological changes. What you need to do is to stress the system and it, we are now starting to understand how that stressing on the system will activate genes that when you're actually sleeping will uh, stimulate change. And, and as long as you keep stimulating that system, you will see you know, bigger and bigger changes over time. I, I think it gets back to this idea that if you want to do something that you can't already do, so if you want to juggle three balls, if you just keep juggling two balls that you already are able to do, then you're probably not going to be able to juggle three balls. One truth of learning, whether we're trying to grow a muscle or a skill, is we have to create some amount of struggle in order to see change. Now, the tough part is it doesn't always feel good to engage in this type of practice, but it's better if we're trying to make a change. A point to be clear on here is we're saying that struggle helps us grow. And that's true, but there are ways to incorporate too much struggle into our practice that's not actually beneficial. Absolutely. I could make something so difficult and full of so much struggle that we won't grow. Just like lifting weights. Like I could add too much weight. I'm struggling, but definitely not going to grow. Right. But then on the other end of the spectrum would be I use no weight. I'm not struggling, not going to grow. So we're looking for that middle ground, the right amount of struggle. The other thing to keep in mind with struggle is we want the right type of struggle. There's a lot of ways to make practice more difficult by bringing in all sorts of random ridiculous variables and obstacles that make it hard, but it's sort of fake hard. These are things I'll never have to deal with when I'm doing the actual thing. So one way to incorporate struggle and ratchet up the difficulty is use the variables that you'll see during the actual performance. Okay, our, our fourth pillar of improving the quality of our practice is feedback. Now on the surface, we think, yeah, feedback is coming from external sources. And sometimes it does, like my audience could give me feedback. Uh, you could have someone listen to one of our podcast episodes, thanks mom, and give us feedback. But it doesn't always have to be external. 
you can give yourself feedback if you're honest. Like, right. I do this all the time. I'm still trying to get good at making latte art. And like, you know, it's not a very important skill or anything, but it's one every time I make it, I think through, okay, what happened? Why is the foam different this time? Why, when I poured, was it different like this? Like just thinking through that and reflecting. Right. very valuable. I don't have anyone who lives with me who can say, Mm-mm. you know, you should do it this way or something, but I'm still able to get valuable insight yeah. just from spending the time by myself. Doing I think that. if the keys are, it's the willingness to do it and just kind of being honest. I do this yeah. with my workshops, like dream scenario at the end of our workshop, I could meet one-on-one with the 200 people from the audience and just be like, Hey, what did you like? What could be better? That'd be awesome. Impossible right. to do. But something I do is like on the flight home or whatever, I'll just kind of recap, like what were the moments where it was really hitting and connecting? What were the moments that were like kind of fuzzy, kind of confusing? And if we're just honest, like that's valuable. I'm essentially giving myself feedback through reflection. Right. So just because we don't have an expert coach guiding us through this process, that doesn't let us off the hook for giving ourselves feedback. Yep. And another approach might be for some skills, this would work. If we actually film ourselves and engaging in the practice you could compare that against the model even so you could you have that contrast of like all right here's what i'm going for but here's where we're at and you can compare and contrast so in a way that's giving you feedback as well so let's assume now that we're talking about a surgeon that actually has a problem and one part of the surgery and I, I know a lot of surgeons who actually videotaped the surgery so they can actually now take a look and sort of think through what is it that I should have been aware of to actually avoid having this situation happen. What we're saying is all four of these layers, they're free. Like they're around us, they're free. With a little creativity, we can engage in them more. This is gonna help us improve the quality of our practice and get better at getting better. In terms of access to resources, we have never lived in a better time for developing a skill. Whatever skill we wanna learn, there are plenty of resources available to us at our fingertips on the internet. We can just go to Google, type in whatever we wanna learn, and there's something there to help us. And it'll most likely be free. And this might seem simple, but that that right there changed my whole life. The most important skill I've ever developed professionally is learning how to produce videos on After Effects. Like most people that know about Learner Lab or Train Ugly, RIP, um, they discovered us through our YouTube videos and they're like, oh, these videos are amazing. We love them. And being able to produce those videos, that's a skill I learned online. I didn't go to art school for that. I wasn't trained professionally. I learned that skill strictly from watching YouTube. And that skill changed my life. That's the beauty of the internet, right? Like whatever skill we want to develop, there are tons of courses, resources, and free videos online that can help us build that skill. Now, one thing to keep in mind and something that I've experienced personally is it's really easy to just go on YouTube and just watch tutorials over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And it feels like I'm learning, right? Like I'm watching people go through the steps of how to animate a video and it really feels like I'm learning stuff. But then when I go and try to do it on my own, I don't remember what happened. So I have to go back to the tutorial. So this is uncovering a really important point to make here, which is that there's a difference between knowledge and skill. And it's easy to go watch these tutorials and get tons of knowledge, but to actually develop a skill, I need to go put it into practice and I need to spend the time developing that skill. You know, if you look at our educational system, it focuses so much on testing knowledge. And I think part of it is, it's so easy to test for knowledge. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in most people's lives, 
it's relatively rare that knowledge is kind of a goal in itself. So in medicine and a lot of the professional schools now, they have something they call problem-based learning where you're basically getting cases with patients and then they basically tell you about the knowledge that is valuable for you to kind of reason out and sort of think about basically the patient in the particular context. And I think the same thing, you know, is true with math, that the kind of math that most people use as adults is very different from the math that they spend a lot of time in school, you know, getting good at and being tested on. So I think in real life, being able to think mathematically is so much more important than being able to do calculations. And maybe that's a great place to wrap this up. It's We've uncovered some... We've talked about some important things. We talked about how learning and getting better at something is just not a function of time, but it's also about the quality of practice. And then we unpack like four pillars of quality practice. My best advice to everyone listening, and I want to do this too, it's just go back to those four things. Pick a skill, find a model, find ways to practice that expand you out of your comfort zone and find ways to get feedback. If we're all engaged in those things more often, like think about how good we can get at stuff and how many new skills we can add to our arsenal. I think that's awesome. And it's a great time to do something like that. I played The Sims a lot as a kid. Mm. And I think it like translated somehow into my brain of how I think about a lot of things in the world. I'm just like, oh, if I go spend time baking bread, then I acquire a new skill of baking bread. And now yeah. I always have that skill of baking bread. No, that's, that's how weird. I think about it too. It's just like yeah. the... The ROI on some of this is ridiculous. It's like, yeah. wait, if I can just like spend a couple hours on YouTube feeling a, like a novice, right. I get to acquire something that is going to help me forever. It's like, right. wow. <laughs> it's massive. Thank you to everyone for listening to this episode. We'll be back next week.